Poor blood banking has become increasingly prominent in OBGYN practice, which demands a myriad of skills such as counseling expectant parents and families on collections, procedure processes, and differences in public versus private banks. Is your state of knowledge up to date? If not, getting you there is going to be part of our goal today. You're listening to ReachMD, and I'm Dr. Matt Bermholtz. Joining me at Omnia Education's Women's Health Annual Visit in New York is Dr. Jordan Perlow. He's Director of Maternal Fetal Medicine at Banner Good Samaritan Medical Center in Phoenix, Arizona, and Associate Clinical Professor of OBGYN at the University of Arizona School of Medicine. Dr. Perlow, welcome to the program today. Well, thank you very much. It's good to be here. Great to have you here, even though it's uh, clearly a lot colder than University of Arizona climbs. That's true. <laughs> so to start, let's get a primer on cord blunt banking's history. I mean, I understand that you've been right at the forefront of this evolution in practice over the years. Um, what's your view on cord blunt banking's rise to prominence? Well, it's uh, an amazing technology, as it turns out. And you're right, I have been there from uh, the very beginning in terms of uh, looking at the literature on this particular subject and kind of seeing where the science has gone uh, since the mid to late 1990s. So it's been quite remarkable. And tell us a little bit about that history from the 1990s on. How did it originate, and what kind of traction has it gained over the years? Well, the history really begins uh, going back to 1988. Um, so not that long ago, really. But at that time, the world's very first cord blood transplant uh, was undertaken. And it was to treat a child that was born with Fanconi's anemia, uh, which is an autosomal recessive uh, condition. Uh, the child was quite ill, was transfusion dependent, and uh, fortunately at the time, uh, this, this child's uh, mother was pregnant, and a test was done by amniocentesis to see if that child also would be similarly affected with Fanconi's anemia. When it turned out that uh, the child tested negative on the amniocentesis, the idea was to collect the cord blood at that time because there was not a marrow donor within the family that would be suitable for uh, this child. And so that's what happened. The, the boy that was affected by this disease, his mother delivered his sister. And the sister uh, cord blood was collected. The cord blood and the child with Banconi's anemia and the parents went to Paris, France. Uh, and Dr. Eliana Gluckman uh, performed the world's very first umbilical cord blood stem cell transplantation. And was it just auspicious timing that this particular case became one that core blood banking was able to be an option? Or was there a very particular element of this case that made it more prominent or more reason to examine or investigate that? Well, prior to that time, bone marrow had served as the traditional source of hematopoietic stem cells for the treatment of malignant as well as non-malignant uh, conditions. But prior to this particular case, there had been really an explosion in research that identified umbilical cord blood as being a very, very rich source of these hematopoietic uh, stem cells. And there was also advancement in the whole process of cryopreservation of these stem cells that would then allow them to be used uh, for the treatment of disease. So it was kind of a combination of the basic science research and the need uh, that this child had and the fact that the providers, the healthcare providers for this child were on the forefront of this research that it looked like the perfect opportunity to take this new technology into the clinical realm. Interesting. I'll be definitely interested to follow up with you on the cryopreservation, the technologies that have gone into this and our understandings of the ways of utilizing umbilical cord blood. But 
Uh, first, how far-reaching now, going from 1988 to, to today, how far-reaching is core blood banking now? Well, it's quite amazing because uh, the, the most recent data that's available would tell us that there now throughout the world has been a cumulative total of about 30,000 <laughs> umbilical cord blood stem cell transplants. So this is not uh, experimental and not theoretical. Uh, these are um, our fellow human beings with very serious illnesses being treated with what was once considered medical waste. And all of us in the field, we know that even today, despite the fact that we know what a rich resource the blood is with, that's left over within the cord blood and the placenta, we know what a great resource that is. There aren't always opportunities for collecting it and preserving it. And so still to this day, much of it becomes medical waste, unfortunately. But now we've got 30,000 approximate uh, transplants that have been uh, completed. And there seems to be uh, no limit when you look at the current research in areas of regenerative medicine, for example, where the potential for future use seems to be expanding every day. Is the utilization of cord blood on an exponential growth curve, or is it sort of a slow linear progression right now? No, when you look at the, the numbers, and the numbers uh, are out there, it is exponential. And mm. uh, it's estimated the potential with regenerative medicine applications, if that, in fact, does become clinical reality, uh, the likelihood for use could be as high as 1%. So before we move in on the applications, because that's an area I'm going to want to spend probably the majority of our time, take us a little bit through the stages of core blood collecting, because I understand that there are sort of um, four major stages. Um, how, do you, how do you break them down as far as uh, going from point A to point Z? <laughs> well, I think it all really starts with counseling the patient, and um, uh, it's important to point out that there's a number of states, uh, more than 20 states in the country, that actually have state laws um, directed specifically at cord blood education to pregnant women. So uh, these are legislatures that have been petitioned or lobbied by different individuals uh, that may have experienced uh, a clinical situation where they were unaware uh, of the opportunity for cord blood banking, and had they been aware, that might have potentially led to a better outcome uh, for someone in their family. So it's scenarios uh, such as that that have led to a number of state legislatures creating laws that direct obstetrical health care providers and how they are supposed to consult their patients. So uh, I would suggest that um, if people are unaware of that, that they research through their state medical society or state medical board if there are laws specific to the counseling on this. But, you know, it's one thing to respond to the law. The other, of course, is the medicine. And uh, I think there's very good reason to counsel our patients to take some time to talk to them about the opportunities that exist. And those opportunities will vary uh, from state to state because, and from hospital to hospital, in fact, because not every hospital will be set up to allow for public uh, banking. So uh, some hospitals have affiliations with uh, public cord blood banks and have a process that's very, very smooth where there's a consent process when the patient comes in for her delivery and the cord blood is collected and then sent into that public bank and evaluated for its uh, adequacy as a sample to be stored. Um, but other patients may be delivering at a hospital where the opportunity for public banking doesn't exist. And so for those patients, there are uh, places throughout the country um, that do offer uh, public banking at no cost 
um, even if they're not set up locally in that particular hospital where the patient will deliver, but it does require quite a bit of uh, lead time in uh, pre preparing for that. Um, there is an excellent website uh, called uh, parentsguidecordblood.com that actually goes through state by state and talks about the opportunities for uh, public banking. So that would be an excellent resource uh, in terms of that issue. So just getting back to that non-uniformity of access of banking across state, state lines, does that complicate training for how to counsel patients, or are there some standards of practice that you've employed for counseling patients on their options that uh, can be taken anywhere? Well, the way I approach uh, counseling is really to look at the patient as an individual, uh, because uh, certainly public banking is something to be encouraged, but the opportunity for family banking uh, shouldn't be lost either. Uh, and there are those situations where there may be benefits to family banking. For example, we know that for individuals with hematological malignancies and other diseases, that if the uh, cord blood is used from a related source, that the outcome is generally looked at as improved versus getting that same sample from a public bank. So if there's... Um, a banking of the cord blood stem cells for the family in a family bank, and if there ever is a need, there is uh, some data suggesting that the outcome would be improved in that setting. So it's very important to talk to patients about the family history, the genetic history in the family. Is there anybody in the family currently with a condition that could potentially be treated with cord blood stem cells? And, and to know those answers, one has to really stay up to date in this area uh, to know what diseases, in fact, are being treated. Hmm. Well, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to ReachMD. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz, and I'm joined by Dr. Jordan Perlow from the University of Arizona School of Medicine. So, Dr. Perlow, let's move right in on the utilization of core blood. Where is it being utilized? You talked about regenerative medicine. I'd like to hear more about that and the applications. Um, I imagine some trauma backgrounds might, um, or neural or spinal issues might be uh, places by which it can be employed. Where, where does core blood get utilized? Well, regenerative medicine is, is something that, you know, we should definitely talk about. I wouldn't quite say it's pie in the sky, so to speak, because there's a lot of clinical research going on right now, animal research, bench lab research, as well as human trials in their earliest uh, stages. But we have to be very careful in, in counseling patients about the potential benefits as it relates to regenerative medicine. We don't want to overstate anything. Uh, we don't want to say that, oh, if there's ever diabetes, that's going to be completely cured if you save the, the baby's stem cells or if there's ever a stroke or a heart attack or other chronic medical conditions. But uh, I can say this, that there's a, a very optimistic opinion about that potential down the road when you look at the, the research that's being done. In fact, there was a study just recently published this year looking at children who were born with low APGAR scores that had, were acidotic at birth, that were diagnosed uh, with neonatal seizures, diagnosed with hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy. And those children underwent uh, cooling, the cooling cap uh, per protocol to reduce the uh, neurological uh, impact of that condition. But some of the children who had cord blood stem cells available uh, that were collected at the time of their delivery received that infusion as well. And those children had improved survival as well as uh, improvement in neurological uh, scores 
during a period of follow up in terms of cognitive development in terms of motor as well as behavioral outcomes that were measured so that's a very exciting thing especially in our field of obstetrics where we oftentimes will come into contact with those situations where we deliver a baby that has those adverse outcomes to know that if we collect the cord blood that potentially could be used to ameliorate one of the most serious conditions of cerebral palsy. So is that case that you just talked about, is that sort of a rare exception at this time or are there real-time applications such that this core blood banking isn't simply just an insurance policy for something to be announced or to be determined much later down down the road? Well, the real-time applications as we sit here right now involve the use of core blood primarily for the treatment of hematologic malignancies such as leukemia and lymphoma, also for the treatment of the inborn errors of metabolism, and there's some amazing work that's been done looking at the treatment of children with Hurler's uh, syndrome, there's the hemoglobinopathies, such as sickle cell anemia and thalassemia, which have been treated very successfully. Children that have been rendered hematologically normal that had sickle cell anemia that were transfusion dependent, very sick children. And then there's also some relatively rare immune deficiency syndromes that have also been successfully treated with cord blood stem cells. So that's kind of the mainstream application at the present time. And then looking beyond that, we get into the uh, applications of regenerative medicine. And I mentioned uh, hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy therapy. There are studies looking at the treatment of uh, lupus, other autoimmune uh, diseases, looking at spinal cord injury, stroke. There was a study just recently published, a case report actually, where a child was prenatally diagnosed with hypoplastic left heart syndrome, uh, which not that many years ago was looked at as a lethal condition. And we now know that over the last decade or, or a little bit more than that, perhaps, there's a number of cardiac surgery procedures that can be performed, considered salvage operations. Um, this child was born, uh, in fact, at the Mayo Clinic, and they had a protocol where they collected the cord blood from this child because it was prenatally diagnosed, and they were able to use the cord blood stem cells to inject into the right ventricle at the time of the second surgery that that child underwent for this hypoplastic left heart syndrome, and they showed significant improvement in the injection fraction, the cardiac function uh, for, that, for that child. So there's lots of exciting things going on. There's even the creation of heart valves in the laboratory where cord blood stem cells are used to seed a biodegradable scaffolding for cardiac valves that have proven, at least in the laboratory, to be up to the task of sustaining the pressures that would be generated in the in vivo setting. Lots of very exciting things coming, I believe. That does sound really exciting. And a number of the real-time applications, I think, it's, it seems as though they get lost in the shuffle in the public eye sometimes because of the focus on regenerative medicine is very, very alluring. But you've sort of outlined for us that there are a number of real-time applications. But getting back to a point that you made earlier, we said I focus on the individual patients, these expectant parents, and deciding whether this is a good option for them. Do you do any kind of uh, family or uh, history or genetic screenings to kind of get a sense of this particular couple might really benefit from undergoing this particular collection procedure so that they can have this on them and, and sort of have that insurance policy, if you will? Yeah, I think that you know, going through the family history and going through the genetic history 
uh, per the standard, you know, ACOG forums and other prenatal forums that exist are, are certainly adequate. But just asking the simple question, is anyone currently in your family being treated for any genetic or any inherited disease or any malignancy? Is anybody undergoing chemotherapy? Just kind of opening the door to that sort of discussion. It's amazing what you can find out. I saw a patient uh, a number of years ago uh, who came for a consultation because she had chronic hypertension. She was 32 weeks. And I discussed with her the risks of abruption and preeclampsia and growth restriction. And we talked about that. And in the middle of my conversation, she said, you know, I really appreciate the information, but I've, I've got to get going. Uh, and she had a two-year-old on her lap. And I said, what, what's the hurry? She goes, well, we have an appointment at the children's hospital because my child here has black Van Diamond syndrome. And I'm thinking, well, hmm. I, I used to know in medical school what that syndrome was, but I do recognize it as one of the conditions that's treated and has been treated with umbilical cord blood stem cells. And the patient was completely unaware of that potential, had no plans for doing cord blood collection at the time of delivery. And of course, through that conversation, that, that ultimately changed. Fascinating. I love the, the aspect of that story that involved just happening a chance upon information that was critical to being able to move forward and there. I, and I think it just really illustrates how important it is to ask these questions from the get-go uh, and to be aware of those conditions that are currently being treated uh, with core blood stem cells. Well, before we wrap up, um, I don't want to put you on the hot seat for trying to distill a very uh, broad topic into um, a short amount of time, but can you give us a sense of some of the advantages or disadvantages of some of the core blood banking options, such as a family banking or public banking? Sure. I, I mean, I think there's every reason in the world that patients should consent to the collection of cord blood to be placed in a public bank. The public banks that exist uh, throughout the United States, they're getting more and more samples. The programs are underway. But still, when you look at the data, we still need more samples to be able to provide the very best match to an individual that comes down with one of these conditions requiring stem cell transplant. So I think all patients should be encouraged to do public banking whenever possible. In terms of the private banking, this is certainly an option. There's a lot of potential benefit down the road, potentially is the, the emphasized word, as it relates to regenerative medicine and potential uses for various conditions that can come up over the course of a childhood or even into adulthood. And some patients may want to take advantage of that opportunity uh, aware that there is a, a, an economic impact to family banking uh, that is not inconsequential. I mean, it could be around $2,000, for example, and then there's annual storage fee. But for the patient where there's a potential need, the private family banks will uh, oftentimes allow for that collection and processing and storage to take place without any charge whatsoever if there's a potential need or use for those uh, umbilical cord blood stem cells. And any storage concerns? Uh, you mentioned cryopreservation. Has that proven stable and safe? It has. Um, but one other thing I was, I was going to mention that might be uh, another patient population to talk to about family banking. Uh, you know, we have many patients uh, who use donor gametes to create the pregnancy where there wouldn't be the ability to backtrack to a family history uh, to see if there was a potential donor if stem cells became required. Mm. Similarly, uh, in the setting of adoption, a very similar type situation, 
And then for patients of mixed ethnicity, for example, there's a very low probability of finding matches of stem cells in public registries for those individuals. So doing family banking in that setting may also be beneficial. Makes sense in that case. Yes. So before we wrap up, any thoughts that you want to impart with our audience about this important subject here? Well, you know, uh, I think the the parting thought really is that, you know, I first uh, looked at this, again, it was mid-90s, late-90s, and I wasn't quite so sure about this. Uh, We were starting to get all these fancy brochures coming to the office at that time, and nothing had been written about this in any of the obstetrical literature that I was aware of, and I looked for it, didn't find much. So most of the literature on this is in the hematology journals, it's in the immunology journals, it's in the transplantation biology journals, things that obstetricians generally uh, are not reading on a regular basis at least. But I took a look at it uh, because we were throwing those brochures away. And uh, I started to to think, well, maybe there's something to this. And it's right around that time, if I can share a a quick story. Please. I was driving home from work and uh, was talking to my mother uh, on the phone. And generally, these were conversations about family, about the kids, about nieces and nephews and such. But out of nowhere, she says to me, Jordan, what do you do with the cord blood after you deliver a baby? And I I was shocked by this because generally there'd be no uh, medical sorts of conversations between us. And I said, well, we get a little, you know, tube uh, of blood and we send it to the lab. They test it for a few things. And she goes, but what do you do with the rest of all that blood? Aren't you supposed to save it? And so my mind is kind of listening to this and thinking about those brochures that were coming to the office. And I said, no, we, we, we don't really do much else with it. And she said, well, I'm going to send you a Dear Abby article that says that you should be saving that blood. And uh, she, she really emphasized that, and she did. She cut that out from the Chicago Sun-Times, sent it to me. I took a look, and I thought, you know, if my mother knows more about this subject than her uh, maternal fetal medicine son, there's, there's a problem here. And she won't be the only one asking me questions about this. Patients will. And so that really initiated my look into this and to see really how far it's come in the time period since I became interested through my mom's uh, nudging, you could say. Uh, it's really quite, quite amazing. Well, it's thus proving once again that many of the greatest noble quests in medicine and elsewhere are originating and owe themselves to discussions in cars with, with our moms, yeah, I think. Yeah, very well said. <laughs> <laughs> well, with that, I very much want to thank Dr. Jordan Perlow for his time and insights on core blood banking and for uh, how, I think, Nobel-worthy uh, innovations get pioneered. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz, and I've been your host. For access to this and other important interviews in OBGYN and women's health, please visit ReachMD.com. And thanks, as always, for listening.